Welcome to Shireen Conversations. I'm your host, Marjana Paravan. On today's episode, I am joined by Parisa Parnion, who is a designer, visual artist, storyteller, and chef. She is also the founder of Savage Muse, an inclusive design studio, and Savage Taste, a food, culture, and community hub, where she explores a connection between Persian food and storytelling. Hi, Parisa John. Thank you so much for joining me today on Shooting Conversations. It's such an honor to get to speak to you. Hi, Marjan and June. I'm so honored that you uh, reached out and wanted to have a conversation. Of course. And the reason why, too, so that my audience knows um, why I asked you to be on my show is I admire you genuinely. You have, you've been genuine and authentic to yourself since the beginning, based on what I've seen and read and heard about you. Um, your ventures have been so multifaceted. Um, you've had 20 years of experience in the fashion industry. And I know saying fashion industry, people will think, okay, what does that mean? There's so many different areas of fashion, but I feel like you've done it all. You were a a wardrobe stylist. You had your own label, which is incredible. And you also were a college um, lecturer. So you have all of this experience in different areas of the fashion world. How did you get your start in this field? Is it something that you wanted to do immediately as soon as you knew this is what I want to be when I grow up or what got you there? Yeah, I I knew I wanted to be a fashion designer by the time I was 12. And um, my family, so I was born in Iran, um, but my family immigrated to Arizona, of all places, when I was four. And um, when I was 12, I was still living in Arizona, you know, and I knew I wanted to be a fashion designer, but I mean, there's no fat, there was no fashion industry in Arizona. Um, And so, yeah, at the beginning, I did a lot of like illustrations, kind of a self-taught artist. Um, And by the time I graduated from high school, even though I was like your typical nerdy Iruni who was like top of her class in like calculus and physics, my heart was in fashion design to probably the dismay of most of my professors who were like, why don't you become a doctor, you know? Yeah. And so uh, my parents did put down their foot and they're like, look, before you can move to New York to study fashion, you need a practical degree. So I did stay in Arizona, went to Arizona State University and got a business marketing degree before moving to New York. Do you want to know what year I started? Please tell me. (laughs) Just, you know, because I'm actually proud that I'm, you know, like, I'm an elder. I'm like part of a generation, probably one of the first like major influxes of Iranians to America. So I'm part of like the eight, the seventies, eighties crew that came over. I started design school, which was my second degree. I already had a business degree in 1996. Just wrap your head around that. That's amazing. I mean, I also, like I was telling you right before we started filming, like I also went to a fashion school before getting my degree in marketing. And so I understand that. I mean, you basically started at a time in an industry that for us Iranians, especially first generation was not something that your parents or people expected of you. So you knew what you wanted and you went after it. I did. Um, you know, uh, when I got to New York, it was freaking amazing. Like New York in the late nineties for fashion was still like, you know, all the, all the iconic fashion designers were in, in their prime, you know, Donna Karen, Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, all the people, Michael Kors, who now is like a bajillionaire, you know, like all, all of those like iconic fashion people where it was the designer who had the label, 
it wasn't a celebrity. It wasn't a, an influencer. It was like an actual fashion designer had their own brand. I went there at that time when to be a fashion designer meant to be a rock star. <laughs> it, literally, it, you're exactly right. And that's what you attracted know? me to fashion as well. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I actually lived in New York as well. So I didn't go to college in New York. I went out here in LA, but I moved to New York and I can only imagine in the nineties how it felt and the inspiration in the streets that you got out of it. Oh, it was, there's something about, I don't know, obviously uh, being part of a digitally native world, which was, I'm not a digital native. I've had to catch up, but like Obviously, like, like social media has created so much access to self-expression, right, in style. Mm-hmm. But there's something about seeing it before the people wearing it were waiting to be caught on Instagram, where their intention wasn't like, how many followers can I get? But they were just yeah. being fierce, individual, stylist, badasses, you yes. know? So there's yes, something that element that I miss, you know, because people were just being themselves. It wasn't at all with the, like a strategic intention of how am I going to get more visibility? You know what I mean? Yes. It's very true. It's the way that they're um, showcasing their art or their taste without necessarily yeah. thinking about the dollar sign at the end of the day, that's the perk, but that's not the, what people go after in the beginning when they start that career, because you actually started your own label in New York, which was at a time people didn't know what a gender fluid streetwear brand was. And you did it at a time before social media, like you said, like social media, Facebook had just started, but it was very specific to college students. And I I think right after your line came out is like maybe a year after in 2006 is when Facebook actually opened its doors to anyone with a valid email address. So with that being said, your line one was a gender fluid brand. It was a streetwear brand at a time when people didn't understand the definition of either. And there's no social media to help with that. So how, were there any obstacles with your journey to create this brand? You don't have social media to market it. You did actually create a following, a a brand that you also had a following that was, you know, international. How did you do that? First of all, I am so impressed with the research you've done. You are amazing. Like seriously, that, that takes a lot of skill. Thank you for digging that deep. I mean, because we're talking like 15 years ago. So thank you. Um, uh, to answer your question. Okay, so I started my online clothing lifestyle brand before people were selling clothes really online yet. Like yeah. everyone thought I was crazy to not go straight to brick and mortar. And I went direct to consumer. Um it was the wild, wild west. Okay. I, I started this experimental g- gender fluid streetwear line in Brooklyn as a strictly online brand when none of those things, as you said, were like accessible or mm-hmm. normal. Um, I think because it was new, I was fearless. You know, I, I'm like, what have I got to lose? You know, I had saved some money up. My My last corporate design job was, I was one of the senior designers for the gap, which was, you know, located in Manhattan, the studios. And I saved up my money, quit my job and like launched my label as well as also a textile design studio. Um, And um, the hardest part, well, we didn't know that there was such a thing as social media. Like I didn't have that as a tool. So back then the way you grew your market was you would um, host um, like what we call pop-ups now, like you would have pop-up fashion shows at a dive bar 
and you know your local community of like badass people who are into gender queer fashion would show up you know so it was like a lot of artists and like queer fashionistas and like just you know performers who were like this is so cool you know and so you would build up your brand by hosting community based events and you i would cast for models real people that i scouted on the street who were like wow. really rising looking you know and um the very first fashion editorial for my line was so different and so compelling because all of my models were real people who were uh naturally gender fluid before it was popular mm -hmm. and they were stunning they were stunning human beings just gorgeous to look at and i worked with a talented photographer and the the spread was so powerful that i think at least one of the photos from that got bought and is in the brooklyn art museum as part wow. of their because it was really significant no one was showing like masculine female born humans in like streetwear back then yes. you know? So, so true. And that's incredible. Yeah. I probably need to write that stuff down. I, I'm, <laughs> I've been kind of, I need to do a better job of like archival historic documentation of stuff. Um, Cause you know, we're all just trying to hustle today. So sometimes I don't feel like I have time to go back and relive what I did 15 years ago, but it's probably a, a good idea. It is. Too. I think that's a wonderful thing to, you know, acknowledge that that's not something anyone can do, create something, get it one photographed in a way that was so compelling that a museum buys into it. I do want to point something out because challenging parts of it. Okay. Um, not only at back then did no one in the main fashion industry want to touch me or what I was doing with a 10 foot pole. Cause uh, at that time it was not cool. It was scary. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what is this, you know, what's gender fluid? Like, this is weird. Um, but being from like uh, being from like an Iranian community where you are like judged on your status and and all sorts of things, I think I I was carrying a lot of like internalized shame that when people like you know Iranians would like oh you are fashion designer like but do you do couture in Paris you know and I'm like no I uh, no what I'm doing you probably would think is not even fashion you know like. I had a lot of internal, I think I carried a lot of internalized shame around the kind of people, the kind of community, the the aesthetic I was going for, because it was, it was like the opposite of highbrow. It was street. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about glorifying hyperfemininity. It was about like gender fluidity and like celebrating the in-betweens of feminine and masculine. And so I think looking back, my brand could have been potentially much more successful as far as longevity and sustainability if I like really owned it and wasn't so haunted by all the judgy voices that were like floating in my head about what's the right way to do things. You know, like if I was to go and tell my younger self some stuff, I'd say, if you're going to create something that you believe in, don't let all those like voices of they may not even be real voices like it's not like a specific person but whatever you've internalized from your culture possibly if you were raised in a certain kind of religious environment possibly opinions of your well-meaning family if you let those things get into your head you're going to shoot yourself in the foot you have to believe in what you're doing you know and mm -hmm. I really think that if I hadn't been so like 
I would do really fierce, badass shit. And then I'd be like, oh my God, am I going to be like an embarrassment to my family? Oh my God. Like, is, are, are people going to be horrified by what I'm doing? You know, I, yeah. I couldn't like just own it. And so that's something that even now in my forties, I'm still working through. Like I need to own whatever I'm doing, because if you mm-hmm. don't believe in what you're doing, nobody else is going to support you. Nobody. You know, that's such a good takeaway. And I'm so happy that you said that because again, the whole purpose of this podcast is to have these real conversations. I mean, we are, like you said, you've dealt with this. This was like, you started your brand 15, 16 years ago at a time, like you said, these two things didn't exist. The definitions of gender fluid or, you know, streetwear, but we're in a time right now, if we see streetwear is probably the biggest, like style right now in the, you know, everywhere you go, that's literally what people think about. Not just because we're in the time of COVID and people are about like sitting at home in their most comfortable clothing, but you did still, you still had those reservations because of, you know, culturally people talking, but you didn't stop. It didn't stop you. And so I, I applaud you for that because that is something that a lot of people will take into consideration and just stop altogether. And then 20 years down the line, be like, why didn't I even at least try? Right. If I had a streetwear line today, it would be um, like embracing fierce Middle Eastern badass women attitude. Like I could see you modeling like a fierce. I'd be honored. (laughs) And, you know, just like some cool graphics. And I don't know, let's bring harem pants back. But like as sweats, you know what I mean? (laughs) I'm all about that. Honestly, if you ever decide to go back into that, let me know first. I would absolutely be honored to wear it. <laughs> no, I will definitely uh, let you know. And then with that, actually, you did mention a few things that you are currently doing now. You, yeah. um, you know, after 20 years, that wasn't all for you. You didn't just say, oh, okay, great. I did it. Cool. Like, bye. You actually went on to create Savage Muse, which is phenomenal. For those that are listening to my podcast that do not know about your brand, Savage Muse, it's a lifestyle brand and design studio that celebrates art, design, and cultural experiences. Things that you don't necessarily see all the time, but are are needed to be seen. What motivated you to start this platform? What motivated me is okay. So I I, I found I created the name Savage Muse and got the URL while I was still one of the head designers at Guess. That's what brought me to LA. Was actually I started designing menswear for for streetwear for for Guess um, in LA. Um, I I was there for six years and. Um, what I um, I felt that there was a need in the market for a brand or a lifestyle. I didn't even know what it was. I just like I didn't have a language for what I was trying to create. But I wanted to create like a a design and art focused space where I I could explore and celebrate other uh, intersectional. Like let's say I w- I would use the word woman loosely because I'm actually far more inclusive and expansive in who I would put into those categories, but I wanted to create a space where I could research and celebrate like fierce, badass humans, let's say, um, who themselves in their careers, in their art, in their worlds, defied social standards of what is considered beautiful, what is considered like normal. And um, I started by doing portraits of some iconic, like older women that have, uh, impacted the world positively with like their music, for example. So I did a, a portrait of Celia Cruz, who's a Cuban. She's the queen of salsa. 
what is what connection do I have to her? Well, I watched a uh, 52 like episode Netflix telenovela based on her life. And as I learned about her history, I'm like, oh my God, she was a dark skinned Afro Caribbean woman growing up in Cuba at a time when the lighter your skin was, the more privilege you had. She had a wide nose. She was not considered uh, attractive for her time, but she had the voice of like a siren and she was able to overcome all sorts of prejudice and discrimination in her field to become like the queen of salsa. And, you know, I feel that way about Katie Lang, who's like this Mm -hmm. old school nineties, like butch, a queer country Western singer who broke into country music as a woman at a time when everyone looked like God bless Dolly, but like she was the opposite of aesthetically of Dolly, you know? And so I started Savage Muse mostly as a way for me to find muses, examples of people who have been able to bring their authentic voice, be themselves, create their own sense of beauty and style that defies what, general society considers desirable you know and they are disruptors they are disruptors you know they are you created a destination where people could be celebrated for every unique feature um um, talent any of those things that they have that you said in society may have been said "Mm, you're not pretty enough or you're not like talented enough or i don't understand your art you brought in a place for people to feel safe and still voice their talents Yeah. And, you know, in a perfect world, I would love to have the resources and the capacity to have the Savage Muse platform, which is like a, it's a website, it's Instagram, it's all that. I would love for it to be a place where I could really showcase and really flesh out and all the different amazing people that I come across who are living and breathing today, as well as in the, in the past who fall under that, you know, that umbrella of powerful inspiration you know. Absolutely. And that's the definition of muse. You find people who are living or, you know, are not that have broken barriers, like you said, that you adapt and you absorb into your own, you know, life or your own like inspirations. Totally. Yes. On top of that, though, you know, you do have a branch that's outside of Savage Muse, which is Savage Taste. And I actually didn't uh, know about Savage Taste until I saw one of your episodes on Taste Made. And I know that the goal of your Savage Taste is the art of cooking traditional Persian cuisine and food, but also telling a story that people can relate to. Um, And I think that's so brilliant. That's so inspirational. Um, It's something that I haven't seen before until I started watching your videos and even talking about stories of your life, your sexuality, religion, immigrant experience, like things that people don't talk about normally. And um, with that episode of Taste Made, one that you actually made the Horma Sabzi and you shared your coming out story to your parents and not to go too much because that is a conversation and journey between you and your family. However, if you don't mind, I'd like to dive in just a bit about your what prompted you? Because I feel like that is actually a very, very important conversation to be had for people, especially my audience that coming from a culture of a Persian background, not necessarily being so accepting. And with that episode, you did mention that you actually were making a traditional Persian cuisine. You had your friends over. And in that moment, your parents called you from Arizona. What was it in that very moment that you're like, this is, this is the moment. This is a time that I'm going to be authentically myself and share who I am. That's a really good 
question. And for people who wouldn't know my history, this, this uh, moment of coming out happened like in 1997. So mm-hmm. long time ago, but it's very impactful. I mean, it changed my life, obviously. Um, at that point, I, I had moved from Arizona to New York to go to design school at Parsons. And, um, you know, uh, it was like a, it was a series of things that happened. First, I had watched the then new Broadway show called Rent, which is now like iconic. And in Rent, one of the characters is um, a gay boy who um, I think he, it's been so long since I've seen, but I think he also like might've been HIV positive or he, he had some stuff. Right. And I remember when I watched it on Broadway, I got such a like lump in my throat when his mother would keep calling and leaving him messages on the voicemail. This is before people had cell phones and um, he wouldn't answer the phone. And I could tell his mom was so concerned and she didn't know what was going on with her boy. Oh, I get choked up when I think about it again. I know all these years. And it still chokes me up. And I realized that I had run away to not run away, but I had come to New York because that's where artists and bohemians and people who are different go to, right? To do their thing. And I realized my parents really didn't know the full picture of who I was, what my experience was. And I felt like I was cheating them out of knowing their daughter fully. And so I also had been really connected to my Iranian roots, even though I moved to America when I was four, I grew up in a very traditional family and a religious family. My parents, you know, they're modern, they're very modern, progressive people, but they're still, you know, they're practicing Muslims. They pray five times a day. You know, they have pretty traditional standards of what's considered like good and bad and all of that. Um, But they're full of love. And so I think for me, having a few of my um, Persian friends over who were like me, we were all part of like somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum. And, you know, this is the 90s again, when you didn't have like support groups or visibility at all. So this is like finding unicorns, you know. So I had a couple unicorns over and I wanted to make Ormasabzi because that's the way I've always connected to my roots, which is so common for so many Iranians. We connect to our roots through the food. And here I was creating this warmasabzi dish, which if you can make it well, it's like a sign that you're ready to be a mother and wife. You know, it's like, it's, it's so like true. People, right? It's like, you are ready to be a woman. You're ready to be married. This is it, you know? And so here I am, ironically, starting a trajectory in my life where I want to be a famous fashion designer, living this like big city New York life, which has nothing to do with having a husband or kids, cooking food for other uh, people like myself. And then my parents call and it was just like all of that. It was like, not only was I creating a stew, but I, all of this was stewing in my head. And so when they called me with such like love and earnestness, and I could tell they were a little confused, like, why doesn't she have any hostagars? You know, why doesn't she have any suitors? Why doesn't, isn't she engaged? All of her younger cousins are getting engaged, you know, I didn't want to torture them anymore. And so while my my friends were watching, while I'm making the warm sabzi, they were on speakerphone and I just felt like I had to tell them what, what was up, you know? And it was a very scary, very scary moment. I've, you know, I've heard um, transcripts or I've seen like 
episodes where different people come out to their parents. And mm-hmm. it seems like a lot of us tend to want to first preface by saying, I love you a lot. You know, ooh, I damn, I didn't think I, this would still affect me after all these years. Whew. You know, but you it's want a part to, of who you are. It's, you know, I, it. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, so it was, you know, it wasn't easy. You know, it wasn't easy. You can only imagine what, you know, tra- traditional, well-meaning, loving Iranian parents who sacrificed everything to me. Oh, damn it. She, I'm this sorry. Is, you know, like, you feel so guilty. You're like, my, my parents want the best for me. They want me to move on to have children and, and a spouse. Now, you know, guess what? You actually can have children and a spouse even. Yes, you can. To- Regardless of what kind of you know situation you have, but back then you didn't think about that way. It was like a like a sent like a death sentence. Like oh, your life is screwed up. You've just ruined your life because of who you are. So it was very difficult. And you know, God bless them. They really did their best to be as accepting as possible, even though it completely goes against their own religious and belief system. But they love me, you know, and so. Um, that's like, you know, that was like over 20, is that like 20 years ago? It's a long time ago, (laughs) all of this a long time ago, but you know, um, it's a process. And I, for anyone out there listening who is scared to tell their family something about themselves, that it's important to their well, mental health and well-being and authenticity, whether it has to do with their orientation or something else, you know, um, gender orientation, um, maybe other lifestyle, like some lifestyle things about you that your parents would totally like disapprove of. I don't know. I'm not trying to, you know, condone reckless behaviors, but you know, I'm just saying it's really, it takes a lot of guts to tell your family who you are and you have to be prepared for the circumstances because it's hard to predict what the outcome is going to be. But often the outcome is not black and white. Often it's phases, right? There could be first phases, you're upset. There could be denial. It's almost like the 12 steps. There's anger, there's shock. But if there's love, at the end of the day, love will win. And everyone will figure it out. You'll figure out how to coexist with each other. You painted that picture so beautifully. I actually got chills because I felt like I was in that room with you, with your friends, when you had this conversation. And I appreciate you for being trusting me enough to share that story with me. I do find that it is super important. And you actually, without even knowing my next question, I was going to ask you, is there anything specific that you would share with my audience of people who are also struggling with different types? It's their sexuality, you know, career, their lifestyle choices, like all of these things. And you summed it up perfectly. Thank you. I'm glad it helped. You know, just just to preface this, uh, I was probably way more of an activist of sorts when I was younger because it was really important to my sense of survival and self, right? And like today, I, I think some people, like I don't really talk about my personal life much, you know, but um what I what I've learned from the younger generations is to truly learn to be more fluid and accepting and flexible, you know, around things like um, 
your desire, your orientation. I think one of the things I'm learning from people who are like in their 20s or whatever, 30s, teens, just younger generations is I'm learning that you don't have to, labels don't have to be so black and white. You know, you might fight for something, you might like, because it's important for you to feel seen and visible, but I'm also learning for myself to be more fluid around Mm -hmm. what I'm, you know, who I love and where my desire lays, you know? So today I don't like, I think when I came out, like I use one label for myself. Um, Today I use the umbrella label, which is much more flexible of queer. And that could be a whole other conversation, but you know, that doesn't mean you necessarily are only dating people of the same gender. It's, it's much more expansive and fluid, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I like picked up from what you said, it's for your mental health, it's you're living your life for yourself. You're not living it for anyone else. You know, you respect individuals, your family members and people around you, but in order to live a fulfilled life, be able to be authentically yourself, your passions, you have to be truly yourself. Thank you. Today, I think what's most important, and it's something I want to try to bring more programming and more conversations into my Savage Taste platform is I all I want is to see more people especially like part of the Iranian diaspora I just want people to learn what inclusivity means I want I want people to learn what it feels like to stop judging people on the cover by their by their cover and like break bread with them today Mm -hmm. we can't physically break bread with our friends and neighbors but you know energetically intellectually like one of the things I I personally experienced, and I don't know if you did growing up in California, uh, I assume you grew up in an Iranian community. Would that be correct? Orange, yes, you okay. will be correct in the same. <laughs> um, I think um, for whatever reasons, it could be historical. It could be just part of being part of a diaspora. And, you know, that by diaspora, you know, a group that... Mm-hmm is trying to continue creating their culture and heritage outside of the actual country of the heritage. Um, One of the things I observed, which is really painful for me, and I've had to come recreate my own relationship to is, I found more traditional Iranian community dynamics to be one where people are really concerned about status. They're really concerned about class. Um, How you look to people, your facade is almost more important than how you actually are. And um, there's a lot of uh, criticism and judgment around others. I want to shift that, you know, I think with, with our newer generations, we, we can shift that energy. We can shift the way our communities as a whole treat each other and where they show value in each other. You know, I want, no, I want to respect and admire people because of, of their substance, not the facade. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Don't get me wrong. You know, fashion designer. Yes. It's all about beauty, glamour. That's great. But like, I would love more vulnerability and transparency amongst ourselves because then we have real, real people we can look up to and be inspired by with all their flaws and their triumphs. Not just these glossy, like, I'm perfect. My family's perfect. We're all fabulous and perfect. You know, you can't really grow watching that. 
you know what I mean? I do. It's kind of like a country club of sorts, like where people show off their card or their car or like whatever it might be. And um, what I picked up from what you said, and it's actually one of a quote that's resonated with me in this time and age of people having these conversations now is that until you can fix the problem at home, you can't expect the world to understand the problem. And so within our communities, when we have these open conversations to bring that substance, like you set out, to have these vulnerabilities shown, then we can recognize ourselves for who we are before we can project it to the world to say, this is who we are as Iranians. Totally. I want to agree. You actually said earlier that you consider yourself to be like an activist, that definition to be perfect, because one thing about you that also really struck me before even knowing you were associated with it is on Instagram, I saw someone wearing this t-shirt that said, make Tadik, not war. And I literally, I'm all about that. I have all these types of shirts that say women don't owe you anything or symbolic things that you like say less. Like it says it on my shirt. It's all there. When I saw that shirt on Instagram, I went into a rabbit hole trying to find out who it was, what's going on. And then I saw you actually created it for yourself to wear on a debut episode on, of Taste Made. And yeah. when you created that, did you expect to start a conversation or what, what it meant? Or were you making a statement? Great question. When I made that to wear on that Tastemade episode, it was actually filmed exactly a year ago. And it was during the time that Trump, this is so funny. It was during the time that Trump had been called to be impeached. Mm -hmm. And he had like, tr like suddenly all the focus came to Iran. It's like, he's yeah. being, all of a sudden it's like, Iran is bad. We need to like attack Iran, you know? And I'm like, that's an, what an interesting timing. Hmm. Okay. So at the time I created that because it felt very timely, like let's, let's cook the food of our culture, our heritage and like share it with people and like, let's have peace. What is this war? You know, come on. So for me, I knew that my audience was going to be mostly Americans because, you know, this is a, a, uh, U.S. based cooking show. So this was my like little subversive way to kind of give a message and also be educational because, you know, Tadik is having like, it's become a food trend, which I'm really happy about, but you know, people didn't really know what Tadik was. So, so it started that way. What I didn't expect was to post like a behind the scene of me at the TV show on my Instagram and have all these people say, I want that t-shirt. So I'm like, okay, people want, pe other people resonate with this, this statement. So then I made the t-shirt available in my online shop and it's, it's still available. And let me tell you, I haven't had a chance yet to fully write, like I want to write like an essay or something about this, although nobody reads anymore, but if they did, you know, I can't tell you how powerful it is every time I get a selfie of somebody that I don't know. Usually it's someone from the Iranian diaspora or an ally, or someone married to an Iranian who is sending me a, a picture of themselves with Tadik pride, you know? Like maybe 15, 20 years ago, I was really into making t-shirts for gay pride. Now it's all about Tadik pride, you know? And yes. so um, there is something, I just get chills. There's something so beautiful to have people I don't know connect with me and wanna show me that they also connect with this idea of, um, using food as a platform, not only for 
you know, people staying in touch with their own heritage, but also as kind of like a tool of connecting with people from other cultures or countries. And, and it's a symbol of peace and connection versus uh, walls, you know. And that's so. exactly what it is. And Tadik is not, you would think people see it. Oh, that's easy. It's like how you twist the, like everything. It, there's a science and art to it. So even that in itself, there's something beautiful in that. Like make that, like focus your yeah. time making that, not war. Yes, totally. And um, at some point I want to do like a, a, some sort of a post with all the pictures of everybody. Cause when you see everyone together, it's just so beautiful. I mean, talk about community building during a pandemic, you know, yes. like this is, this has become its own quiet little uh, way of weaving people together. And I, I want to see what more I can do with this because it's really bringing together this virtual community that I think is just so beautiful. Yeah. And it's like full circle in a weird way, like talking about creating like a campaign of sorts of the imagery of all these different types of people wearing it, going back to your roots, creating a photo shoot that was so compelling that, you know, people had to stop and like take it in. So it's like all full circle for you and your journey. Yeah. And um, I have something exciting I want to share with you. I've, I've started working on my own um, collection of spice blends. Um, and that's my next creative venture because I used to throw Persian supper and salon pop-up dinners and I can't do that right now here in LA. Um, I wanted to come up with some clever spice blends that could bring the flavors of my dinners home and I'll, I'll be creating recipes to go along with it and stuff, but, um, it's going to be launching really soon. And here's the thing, nothing I do is, well, how do, no, let me rephrase. Everything I do is layered. Nothing Mm -hmm. is like, singular like your food like my food and I guess my identity and I think that a lot of the people who are part of my virtual community are also very layered people you know they've got they might be immigrant and this culture and maybe maybe their parents are like two different cultures who've married you know and they might have this going on and they might have that going on so the the spice blends I'm doing are symbolic not just it's not just a spice blend. It's symbolic of the layered, beautiful community that's coming together around like flavor and taste, but also design. And um, I won't say more. It's going to be really exciting. It's going to be that, an interactive experience. So that's amazing. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, in our culture, spices are everything. And to be able to give people that ability to smell it, to feel it, to create their own dishes with it is very important and goes very much in theme with everything that you've done is to create that identity for yourself. So I'm really excited to see it. Cannot wait to make sure I want to make sure everyone that's listening tunes in. Will this be on Savage Muse and Savage Tastes Instagram? Yes, mostly right now I'm really focusing as far as Instagram goes on Savage Taste. That's where a lot of the act is Savage Muse is more where I put my illustration and design work, which is, you know, also important. But Savage Taste is where I'm bringing uh, Persian culture, food, art, community building all together. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Patty Sajan. I'm so excited for everything that you have in store. I'm not even surprised. I know after that, there's going to be something else that's going to come out that you've started and I cannot wait to see. Thank you so much. And thank you for being such an incredible... um, host and interviewer. You are, you are very good at your craft. Great. 
For more inspiring interviews, head on over to shittingconversations.com. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review and follow on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Sheeting Conversations. You can also watch episodes on YouTube. I'm Majina Paravon, and you've been listening to Sheeting Conversations. Thank you.